Good morning. Welcome this morning to Kahului Baptist Church. It's a very special day before I get into the reason why. I want to encourage you, if you are a member of Kahului Baptist Church, a member, I'm going to ask you to really try and stay after service for our very important meeting. Um, so it is, it is important that you stay. Today is a special day because today is a meal to remember. Today is the Lord's Supper. And anytime we partake of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, it is a very special time, more so than I think many of us remember. The day was December 7th. 7.48 a.m., today is the 6th, December 7th, 7.48 a.m., the year was 1941, and the Empire of Japan conducted a surprise military attack on Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu. 2,403 American soldiers lost their lives that day, and more than 1,100 were wounded and injured. As we take time to remember today the pain of this that we'll talk about in a moment, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on the history of our country. A very painful day for many. Something's interesting about pain is that pain will either break a person or it can have the reverse effect and make them stronger. As Pearl Harbor proved in the history of our country to unite its people and actually made us stronger as we were united, God likewise has a common practice of using painful circumstances to make his people stronger. And today we remember how the most evil and painful day ever recorded in history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, gave way to the most extraordinary rescue and working of God the world has ever seen. And we carry on that working of God as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. So let me give you some context. Some of you, as we read Genesis chapter 3, probably were thinking uh, that you were in the movie Groundhog Day or something like that, because you're expecting us to be far a lot further along in Genesis. But we're going to take a break from the normal track of Genesis this afternoon, and we're going to see how God's redemptive plan, which started to unfold in the first book, we're going to see some of those themes, how they trace together and actually feed into this, this celebratory meal. It's all related. And so let's pray and ask God's grace in this time. Father, I ask that you would grant our souls this morning a vivid remembrance of all your mighty workings on our behalf. So that if any in here have a dull or a hardened heart, that you would stir us, stir us to wonder. And Father, we praise you for your redeeming work and for crowning us with steadfast love and mercy. 
We praise you for redeeming us from the life of the pit. And would you now, would you now satisfy your people with your good presence, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have three points. It will be the serpent, the separation, and the Lord's Supper. So if you're taking notes, I always encourage you to do so. The serpent, the separation, and the Lord's Supper. In many cultures, and more so in times past, but still today, it's often considered rude if you, before, if you begin to eat before everybody arrives. And in some ways, in Genesis chapter 3, as Keone read, this is exactly what happened. The serpent, also known as Satan, entered the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and immediately began to challenge and twist the words of God to Eve. He tempted them, and he made it look like, he made it appear to Eve as if God was holding out on them. They focused all of their attention on what God was withholding instead of everything that God had granted. And he made it sound like God just really is a glory hog. He just doesn't want your good. He's really all about himself. He knows the day you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. The result of that temptation was the violation of God's command not to eat of the fruit of the tree. And it became the first meal ever eaten without God. Think about that for a second. It became the first meal eaten in disobedience to and without God. Think about how every meal after that they would eat would serve as a painful reminder of their disobedience, of their failing, of their, the fact, the truth, the reality that they were now away from the blessing and fellowship of their creator God. Every meal after that would serve as a reminder. And as a result of their disobedience, God pronounced a series of judgments, if you recall, so the serpent, this is what happens to Adam, this is what happens to Eve, this is what happens. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if you're still clicked there or opened there, look down and you'll find this phrase, Genesis 3, 15. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel, if you remember. Amen. The very first hint that one day, one day, there would be one who was born of a woman and who would crush the head of the serpent, but it would come at a cost. But the judgment remained. So after the first meal that they had, the first meal they ate, there was no remembrance of God and the destructive consequences of sin shattered the peace or the shalom that existed amongst all of God's creation, the harmony. Which brings us to point two, the separation. And so while they had the promise that a Savior would come, while they were waiting for that Savior, the painful effects of sin immediately began to take place. Separation from God. And that they covered themselves and they hid. 
separation from God. They were exiled from the Garden of Eden. The people of God were kicked out of the place of God that he had had for them because of their disobedience. They had immediate distance between husband and wife as they clothed themselves for the first time. Whereas the Bible said over the newlywed couple, they were naked and unashamed. Now they were naked and ashamed and attempted to cover themselves. There was conflict God said what happened between husbands and wives and children and parents and children, brothers and brothers and others and families. The ultimate separation that God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The ultimate separation was death. Death was the final separation between God and every good gift that he gave his people. This is what's so hard about death, is it not? What's so hard about death? Why does it sting so bad? Because it robs us of all the joys, of all the pleasures, of everything that we know in life. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. And so Genesis unfolds, and it rings out almost like a refrain, chapter after chapter, and Adam lived however many years and died, and Seth lived this many years and died, and died, and died. It's very, very sad, but not without hope, but not without hope. As we've seen in our time in Genesis, the separation grows, so it's not just families, it's not just husbands, wives, now it's tribes, ethnicities, nations, genders, all becoming more and more separate, such that a meal, like we're about to eat, such that a meal which once symbolized unity and fellowship and relationship now begins to symbolize hostility, disunity. And so there were certain groups of people, certain nations that would not eat with others. We saw this with Joseph. Remember when his brothers come and, and he's sitting there with them having lunch? It says the Egyptians wouldn't eat with the Hebrews. Fellow image bearers of God, separation. Fast forward a couple thousand years and you see Jesus on the scene. And what was Jesus doing? He was eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. And it was scandalous, the work he was doing. There was a separation. And sometimes there is a separation not only in families wrought by sin, not only in ethnicities wrought by sin, not only amongst siblings. Maybe some of you have this in your families. Sometimes there is a separation even in the church. Even in the church. Which brings us to the third and final point. You're like, wow, Pastor, you are flying this morning. Merry Christmas. <laughs> One time only. What's the answer to all of this? This separation, this hostility, brokenness entered into the world. Number three, the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper. Now, before you get concerned, I'm not going Catholic on us over here, all right? 
Stick with me. How is this state of separation to be remedied? The answer is found in none other than the good news of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel that will be signified and displayed in the Lord's Supper. See, when Christ came, he blasted the barriers that were erected by sin. He just broke through them all. And he actually, the first time since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, 8, with his image bearers. And so the night before Jesus dies, one of the last things he does with his disciples is he has a meal with them. He has a meal. He eats with them. This meal would be different from all the others that they had shared with him before because this meal, this special meal, was to be an explanation, see? An explanation of the new work that God was about to do. Yeah, he was about to inaugurate. This was a foretaste, just a, a glimpse of the redemption of God and his bringing to fulfillment the promises of Genesis chapter 3. The head of the serpent was about to be crushed, and God would make a way for fallen men and women again to be in fellowship with him. Amen. Praise God. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captured Israel. And so, in this brief, super brief survey of the scriptures, one of the things we see is that the Bible opens with a meal. A meal eaten by God's people without God, and it ruined everything. The Bible also closes with a meal eaten with God. And his people, and they rejoice forevermore. Very interesting, isn't it? Genesis and Revelation, two bookends. It's one story all about Jesus. What is this meal I'm referring to? The book of Revelation, chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And God was in the midst of his people forevermore. But that brings us to the now. We're not in Genesis chapter 3, and we're not quite in Revelation 19. We're here. This meal, so while I'm talking a lot about this meal, please know this meal does nothing for you. It will not even satisfy your bellies. It's not that much food, all right? This meal does nothing for you in and of itself. In and of itself, time does not permit me to explain right now how different we have an understanding of the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist. Suffice it to say, they would say that partaking of it actually has an effect whether you believe and follow Christ or not. We would say absolutely not. That this is a sign, a symbol of the work of God that we partake by faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. This is actually a picture. It's a picture of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for sinners who repent and believe in him. It's a picture. It's going from black and white, real, if you will, to 4K display. So as I preach it and you hear the gospel audibly that Jesus saves sinners, 
Here you will taste it and see that the Lord is good. That grace is good. As such, this is a meal that is made available to all. All of you may partake. It's available to all, yet it is restricted to those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior by faith alone. So it's available, and we invite you, such if you haven't made that commitment to follow Jesus, if you've never returned from your sin and trusted in Christ and, haven't, and are not following him, we invite you today to do so. We would welcome you today to do so, and we'll invite you as family and celebrate with you on the work that God is doing. But if you haven't, the scriptures say you should abstain from this meal until you do so. Because the reason for this is that this meal signifies that you are in fellowship, you are in one with God through Jesus Christ. That you are at one, you are in fellowship, not only with Jesus Christ, but with his body. That whereas before there was hostility between all of us and God, now there is peace and unity. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, for we are one body, and so we partake of the same bread. It's a picture, see. It's a symbol of what God is actually doing. Now, I said in point two that sometimes God actually tells. So while it is available to all, and he is making it available and inviting all to come and taste and see that God is good, while it is available, there are times that God tells certain people not to partake precisely because of what it symbolizes. Such as is the case in church discipline. Let me give you four examples. One of the reasons that I love being a Baptist is because Baptists historically are known for following God's word alone, sola scriptura. We're not the only ones known for that, but historically we are known for following God's word, not traditions, not opinions, and not feelings, but God's word. So let me give you four examples from the scriptures, from God's word, of times that he actually tells us not to fellowship or eat at the table with certain people. You can turn to these if you want. I'll cover them briefly. 1 Corinthians 5.11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Please note, all of these are written to Christians in churches. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That means who calls himself a Christian, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In verse 13, he goes on to say, purge the evil person from among you. I'll comment at the end. Just hear the word of God. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes to young Timothy at his church, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, 
have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Again, Paul writing to a church regarding a professing Christian. If they stir up division after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Paul says at the end of the great book of Romans, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Last verse, 2 Thessalonians 3.14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, he had written them a whole bunch of directives. If anyone does not obey what, they, what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? It kind of lands like a bomb in our culture because it's so foreign to us. And it is hard. But if it sounds foreign to us, it may be because we've lost nature of what the church actually, lost a bearing of what the church actually is by nature. See, the church, while it is imperfect, the people of God, and while we are under grace, nevertheless, God actually tasks us with representing his very character and nature to the world. We are ambassadors of Christ. That means that this area in here is by nature an embassy. And this weird miracle happens that as we come together as citizens of heaven and follow Jesus, that we are being progressively conformed to the image of his Son. And this miracle happens, and the world looks at us, and they say, you know what? The ch That's kind of what God's like. That's kind of what God is like. This is huge. So, when some rise from within that church, the people of God and begin to taint that picture of God because maybe any number of reasons, but ultimately it boils down to not following Christ and refusing to turn from their sins. That's what a disciple is. A disciple literally means follower. So when you have a professing disciple who is no longer following Christ and refuses to do so, God asks, God asks, not pastor. God asks his people, to guard the purity of the gospel message and the purity of the church Amen. and separate. This is hard. And even in the difficulty, even in the pain, there's a reminder of God's forgiveness, of God's free mercy through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for sinners who repent and believe.
no matter what you've done. If you repent, if you're like, man, I'm feeling like, man, I was maybe one of the ones in, in the passages that Pastor Randy read, please know, please know this, repentance is available, forgiveness is available today if you will turn and come to Christ. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And you will find healing. And so as we partake this month, as we are about to feast at the Lord's table, may this be a remembrance, a reminder that we are one body united by the work of Christ, and may we move and follow him even in the hard places, rejoicing all the while, knowing that our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God, actual, unbreakable, permanent peace with God. In closing, I want to remind you of some words from theologian John Frame. As I said, this feast isn't something that's going to fill you up. You're not going to be rolled out of here and have a Kanak attack afterwards. It's a little wafer and a little cup of juice. Have you ever wondered why we do that? Have you ever just wondered what, what is the purpose of just, why don't we do something bigger? And I quote John Frame, you're about to eat only little bits of bread and drink little cups. For we know that our fellowship with Christ in this life is only a fraction of what it will be and cannot begin to compare with the glory that awaits us in him. And so when you taste and see, when you eat that stale little wafer and drink that little cup, and it tastes good and sweet, you remember it's going to be so much better. This life is not our home. And the day is coming when we'll be in Revelation 19, not between Genesis 3 and then, but actually there, eating a meal with God face to face. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for celebratory feasts like the one we have that if any are struggling, if any are weary and doing good, that we can come here and we can feast on the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ spiritually and symbolically and so have grace come to our souls by faith, Lord. May you strengthen your people now, not only by the preaching of your word, but by the portrayal of Christ here in this time. And would you heal? For your name I pray. Amen.